Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. Tensions are rapidly escalating between India and Pakistan following a suicide bombing in Indian-controlled Kashmir that killed scores of Indian security forces. In retaliation, India bombed what it called a terrorist camp inside Pakistani territory. The situation is still unfolding. As I'm recording this, there's word that an Indian Air Force pilot has been captured after his plane was shot down over Pakistan. On the line with me to discuss this ongoing crisis and explain why Kashmir has become such a flashpoint between India and Pakistan is Michael Kugelman, Senior Associate for South Asia at the Woodrow Wilson Center. We kick off discussing the events leading up to this escalation of hostilities before having a longer conversation about the history of Kashmir and Indian-Pakistani relations. Uh, One thing I found particularly helpful in this conversation was Michael Kugelman's description of the domestic political logic in India and Pakistan that propels conflict over Kashmir. Needless to say, India and Pakistan have gone to war with each other. The last time was 1971, but now they both have nuclear weapons, so any hot crisis like the one unfolding now has the potential to descend into the worst-case scenario. As I mentioned in the show, I do think that this conversation will give you the context you need to understand events as they unfold over the next days and weeks and months. As always, if you are new to the show, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com where you can subscribe to the podcast using our various feeds. We have a robust archive of conversations on topical and timeless issues in global affairs, often overlooked by most of the US-centric media. So please uh, subscribe and pick a few episodes you like and give it a listen. If you are a regular listener and you love the show, I'll encourage you to leave a review on iTunes. It's a great way of helping increase the visibility of the show, which in turn increases the visibility of the often undercovered global stories that I seek to shine a spotlight on two days a week, every week through the podcast. All right, now here is my conversation with Michael Kugelman of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Uh, Indian aircraft uh, went across the border, uh, and not just uh, into... um, Kashmir, but uh, into Pakistan proper, into a province called Khyber Pakhtunkhwa. They uh, targeted some terrorist infrastructure, terrorist facilities, and uh, it's very unclear as to what the result of that was. There have been 
Indian media reports that suggest that uh, 300 terrorists were killed. I find that very hard to believe. Um, but what I imagine happened is that you had some uh, terrorist targets uh, in this town, Balakot, in Khyber Pakhtunkhwa, uh, very near um, Pakistan-administered Kashmir, and you had some of these terrorist facilities um, taken out. It probably lasted very quickly, and then the Indian uh, Air Force um, uh, aircraft returned back to India. And, and it, this is all happening. We're, we're discussing this almost in real time because we're talking mm -hmm. just a you know like maybe less than 24 hours after these airstrikes occurred. But it seems, based on these initial statements, at least from Pakistan, that they're kind of playing down um, the significance of, of these strikes, whereas India is, is sort of hyping them. Is, is that like a correct description of the situation? Yeah, and it's interesting is that the, the first um, uh, reaction to this Indian strike came not from the Indians, but from the Pakistanis in the form of a tweet uh, last night, uh, here, uh, DC time, the, um, head of the, uh, Pakistani military public relations arm issued a tweet that said essentially that, uh, you know, we had a few Indian aircraft that uh, strayed into our territory. We made sure they didn't do anything. They dropped some payload harmlessly and then they left. So yes, um, it was, it was, the Pakistanis have really downplayed what happened, which, is really in marked contrast to the way the Indians have pitched it, both in the uh, Indian media reports and, more importantly, in the official press statements from the Indian Foreign uh, Office, which has basically uh, laid out this uh, very uh, uh, well-choreographed, complex uh, operation to take out several hundred terrorists. So, you know, the narratives are sharply divergent, uh, but this is, this is nothing new. This is how it works when these things happen in India-Pakistan relations. So... We're going to uh, spend the bulk of this conversation sort of setting the context for listeners to understand events as they may unfold over the next, you know, several weeks, because, you know, it's a little hard to kind of have a do like sort of on the spot analysis of of the implications of this this crisis. So what I'd rather do is sort of talk about the events that led to this um, airstrike and sort of give listeners the tools they need to um, understand um, events as they unfold. So let's just back up a, a little bit then. These airstrikes were ostensibly in response to a suicide attack on 14 December that killed scores of Indian military or, or paramilitary forces. What do we know about that attack, who carried it out, and who was, was killed and, and targeted by it? Yeah, so on February 14th, um, a, a sole suicide uh, uh, attacker, militant, um, in the district of uh, um, Pulwama in India-administered Kashmir, essentially drove a truck into a convoy of uh, Indian paramilitary forces. And uh, the death toll estimates have differed, but it seems like somewhere between 40 and 50 of these Indian paramilitary uh, forces were, were killed. And the um, the militant that carried out the attack was a member of a terrorist organization, a Pakistani terrorist organization called Jaishi Muhammad. It's an organization that's very notorious and has carried has claimed and carried out a number of attacks, not only in India-administered Kashmir but in India across the board. Um, Jaishi Muhammad, including its leadership and its top leader, are all based in Pakistan. Uh, so this is why, uh, right after Jaishi Muhammad claimed the attack. India, essentially, the Indian government um, turned the finger on, on, on Pakistan simply because this is a group. It's not only a terrorist group that is based in Pakistan, but it's a terrorist group that has um, close and well um, 
uh, chronicled ties to the Pakistani security establishment, including uh, intelligence. So um, it's complicated, of course, this being Kashmir, that, uh, you know, for India, this was a clear terrorist attack. It was a horrific incident that took the lives of, you know, at least 40 brave Indian paramilitary forces. But, uh, you know, in, in many in Kashmir and in Pakistan see things differently. They see these paramilitary forces, those that were targeted uh, in the uh, in the attack as as villains, as um, those that embody the very heavy handed uh, security um, tactics used by the Indian state in Kashmir. And these paramilitary forces are hated um, by many locals in Kashmir. So, you know, what India sees is a clear terrorist attack. You have many in Kashmir and in Pakistan that see this as, uh, as a heroic feat, uh, a case of a freedom fighter uh, going after those that have tormented local people in Kashmir for many years. So a couple of questions. First, what, like, how culpable do you consider the government of Pakistan for this attack? And if this attack was indeed somehow directed or done with the, you know, wink of a nod from the Pakistani security services, what is like the strategic logic of, of this kind of suicide attack? Yeah, it's a good question. And it needs to be unpacked in, in several ways. I mean, I, I, I cannot say with any certainty that the Pakistani state was directly involved in this attack. I cannot say that, you know, the Pakistani intelligence officers were essentially had orchestrated this attack and basically uh, stage managed it and told this uh, this local militant in Kashmir to to, to blow up this uh, this convoy. I cannot say that. Uh, certainly, that's what the Indians have suggested. Um, but I think that at this point, when there's still there's a lot of information that's not clear, even though this is an attack that happened almost two weeks ago, um, you know, I think you could argue that Pakistan is guilty by association simply because um, Jaishi Mohammed is a terrorist group that's based in Pakistan and has its leadership um, in Pakistan, is given free reign. And the top leader of Jaishi Mohammed has very close ties to the Pakistani state. So even if the Pakistani state did not actually organize, orchestrate this, uh, this attack on these paramilitary forces in India, the bottom line is that the group that claimed the attack and carried out the attack is based in Pakistan. So now in terms, yeah, well, well, okay, can I just ask along, along those lines, like what are like the bureaucratic politics in Pakistan that allows that situation to to happen to fester allows like the context in which you have this terrorist group that launches attacks in India, um, you know, given sort of a, a free reign and and sort of being able to to operate somewhat unfettered. What yeah. I mean, I, it's you know, I'm just kind of curious to know, like, you know, I, I take it, you know, the the sort of bureaucratic politics of Pakistan can sometimes be opaque, but what what do you infer? Well, it's actually, it's more than bureaucratic politics in Pakistan. I would argue that it gets to the heart of the uh, the very uh, underlying strategy uh, of the Pakistani military, which at the end of the day calls the shots when it comes to pu public policy in Pakistan. Uh, essentially, what you're looking at is that um, Pakistan, Pakistan's military um, projects India as a threat. Um, it views India as a, which is true, a much powerful, much more powerful, much larger country with a more powerful military than uh, than Pakistan's, and uh, Pakistan's military knows that it cannot 
it's not able to push back against India through the use of, of conventional military force. India and Pakistan have fought several wars um, over the last uh, 70 years or so, and India has won all of them convincingly. So basically, Pakistan looks at an organization like Jaishi Mohammed, the terror group that carried out the, uh, the attack on February 14th, looks at a group like that as an asset, a useful asset. I would describe it as an asymmetric asset because it can be used to push back against India in ways that Pakistan's conventional military forces cannot be used simply because they are inferior to those of India. So, you know, Pakistan, it, 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 it uses, these, uses these asymmetric assets in, in two forms. One is by, you know, harboring ties to these terrorist organizations to push back against India. You know, its other asymmetric asset is its nuclear weapons program. Uh, so basically, that's that's why, and that's a good question, people ask all the time, well, why does, what does Pakistan think it gets out of maintaining ties to these horrific uh, terrorists, um, particularly when any terrorist organization is inherently destabilizing? Unfortunately, for Pakistan and for this military that calls the shots, these terror groups are useful because they can stage attacks in India, they can undercut India in ways that Pakistan's conventional military forces cannot. So can we take a step back a little bit and learn more about Kashmir itself and why it's a disputed uh, territory? You mentioned earlier the heavy-handed tactics of Indian security forces in Kashmir sometimes create a, a reservoir of resentment among a certain portion of the population there that, you know, might give rise to um, sympathies, uh, you know, against the, the Pakistani state and might, you know, create like a, a reservoir of, of resentment. Um, can you sort of take us back to sort of the political history of, of Kashmir? Yeah, well, it's a real complicated one. And you have to go back to 1947, which is the year of partition when British India essentially became uh, independent and, and was cleaved into two states, India and, and Pakistan. And basically the way it worked is that, um, you know, the various states um, of India and Pakistan, or of, of India they reverted um, those, the, the Muslim-majority states um, became modern-day uh, Pakistan, and the Hindu-majority states became modern-day India. But then you had Kashmir, which is this very big region, um, which was Muslim-majority, yet did not follow the same pattern uh, as the others did. It was a Muslim-majority state, but the local authorities there were not interested in becoming uh, a part of Pakistan. So there is a very fraught... Um, period of time where it was unclear what Kashmir's status would be. The United Nations um, got involved, uh, and eventually after a tremendous amount of violence that was provoked by partition, you had several million people um, uh, who were killed. It was just horrible. Uh, the UN um, essentially uh, oversaw a ceasefire, but the future and the status of Kashmir was never really resolved. There was talk about having uh, some type of vote or some type of referendum um, overseen by the UN to decide what the status of Kashmir would be, but it didn't really happen. So what, in, so what ended up happening is essentially what you have today, which is highly disputed by both sides. You know, part of Kashmir is um, administered by India, and the other part of it is administered by, by Pakistan. And both countries claim the entire region, and yet each one uh, administers only part of it. So you know, that's why the, the, the politically correct term is to refer to India-administered Kashmir, 
uh, and Pakistan administered Kashmir, but you know the Indians and the Pakistanis they refer to say you know, India occupied Kashmir, Pakistan occupied Kashmir. So basically, all of these there's never been any sort of successful effort to settle the status of Kashmir, and that's why it is so fraught. Uh, and you know when you look at uh, sentiments of Kashmiris uh, locals, very very complicated. Um, you know you look at India administered Kashmir which is where you have the presence of Indian security forces who have been on the ground for many years to try to uh, keep a handle on what oftentimes becomes a very uh, tense situation. Uh, you know, many of these Kashmiris uh, would be much happier not being administered by India, would, be, would rather be independent or a part of Pakistan. Um, so it, it really is very, it's really very complicated and very fraught. There have been some efforts over the years between India and Pakistan to launch talks uh, to, to try to figure out what to do about Kashmir, but they've never been successful. And I think that given the, the underlying tensions or the underlying mistrust and ill will between India and Pakistan, I just can't imagine any time, I can't imagine a time when the two sides would be willing to come together and figure out what to do, especially because India... India is very, believes the status quo is how things should be. Um, Pakistan thinks that that's not true. India administered Kashmir should be a part of Pakistan. Uh, so Pakistan oftentimes in public statements will call for there to be negotiations, some type of process to launch talks on Kashmir. And India says, no, this is a done deal. It's settled. We don't want to talk about it. Is it fair to, to say um, that the sort of tactics used by the Indian government, Indian security services in Kashmir have, you know, kind of laid the groundwork or led to kind of resentments uh, that fueled an insurgency. I mean, the, the individual who committed the suicide bombing was like a homegrown Kashmiri. It wasn't some like Pakistani mm -hmm. sent over the border. Yeah, absolutely. This is a good point. Uh, I mean, you have to go back in in, in time. I mean, there's the, there is a legacy of Pakistan playing a big role in fomenting a rebellion and insurgency against the Indian state in Kashmir in its effort to try to wrest India-administered Kashmir away from India. Uh, that was very pronounced, particularly you know the 80s and 90s. But in more recent years, it's the dynamic of Kashmir and the insurgency has really changed in the sense that. You've got a new generation of young militants, and Kashmir demographically is very young. Um, you know, a lot of young people there. These folks are not, you know, they're galvanized or animated by purely local grievances rooted in the um, actions of the Indian security forces, which entail, you know, cracking down very heavily against peaceful protesters and sometimes protesters that throw stones and pebbles. You know, there's been all these headlines about how you've had generations of young Kashmiris blinded by pellet guns. Um, so, you know, the, the Indians will reflexively say, oh, well, all of this unrest, all of these people protesting violently in the street, they're all being stage managed by Pakistan. I don't think that's true today in ways that it was back in the 1990s. And that's sort of an unsettling reality for India, uh, because that really makes it have to acknowledge that, um, you know, its own governance failures and its heavy handed tactics in this area of Kashmir that it administers are really the the driving factor, the driving force of this this unrest. And indeed, um, that type of environment where you have repression and not many channels to uh, to relay grievances peacefully, 
that becomes a greeting ground for radicalism, for radicalization. And the likes of Jaishi Muhammad are able to exploit that. And that is why this young man that blew up the convoy on February 14th, he was indeed a local. Uh, and I, his parents had said that he was radicalized when he was, uh, I think, beaten beaten up by a few um, uh, Indian police officers in Kashmir. So clearly, you, you have to look at this dynamic um, of the Indian security forces and what they've done and the impact that has on the environment in terms of how it, it, it sort of sparks uh, and fans the flames of extremism and radicalization. Uh, so we talked earlier about the politics at play in, in Pakistan. Can you talk a little bit about... Um, how domestic politics in India, I suppose, particularly in the run-up to uh, an upcoming election, might influence um, decision-making by the Narendra Modi government as um, you know, as it weighs options and, and considers how else to potentially respond to this attack. Well, yeah, the political, the domestic political situation is in, in India is critical in thinking about how things have played out uh, over the last few weeks and the last few days. It's true, India has an election that is going to begin. I mean, this being India, elections take several weeks to uh, to carry out. The election is going to begin in just a few weeks. So, you know, the uh, the attack in Kashmir happened on February 14th, um, and right after that, it was clear you knew that the Indian government was going to have to come out and deliver a strong statement and vow to avenge this attack uh, on its on its uh, security forces. Um, you know, the government in India now is a conservative government, a Hindu nationalist government that tends to take a pretty tough stand on Pakistan. Um, talking tough on Pakistan always plays well politically in India, including on the campaign trail. So it was very clear that once this attack on, on Indian security forces happened, uh, and once the Indian government started making vows and threats to avenge it, you knew that something was going to happen. You knew that India... The government could simply not afford to just sit on its hands after making these threats. So I think what happened, uh, you know, what happened with this uh, with this Indian strike in Pakistan, perfectly predictable uh, in my view. And um, I think that this one strike has essentially achieved what India needed to achieve politically. I think it's proven to the Indian um, voting public that you know their government is going to follow through on their threats. They're not going to let uh, Pakistan get off scot-free, uh, so to speak. And I think now, unless Pakistan retaliates in some big way, I don't envision India feeling the need to, at least in the immediate term, carry out any additional uh, punitive strikes on Pakistan. I think that the important thing was to do something visible, do something muscular um, fairly quickly in order to appease a very angry uh, public, uh, and particularly given the political exigencies of this of this election coming in just a few weeks, and I should say the Indian government had been increasingly vulnerable in the last few weeks. There have been rising unemployment, the economic reform plan that the Indian government um, uh, had promised to carry out really struggled. So you know it's sort of unfortunate to put it this way, but the the terrorist attack. Uh, in Kashmir on February 14th, it was somewhat of a political boon for the Indian government. It gave it an opportunity to, you know, have this rally around the flag thing, and it gave it an opportunity to stage this reprisal attack in Pakistan, which obviously is going to be very popular among the entire Indian uh, political um, uh, populace. So really now, the the potential for escalation 
uh, lies with how Pakistan may respond to this this coming uh, attack. Is that is that sort of or pardon me that the the potential for escalation now um, relies on how Pakistan responds to the Indian airstrike. Well, yes, the ball is certainly in Pakistan's court right now. Uh, you know, India has staged this attack. Pakistan has had uh, press conferences in which they said, uh, essentially, you know, we will respond at a time of our choosing. So basically, they're trying to set things up for some type of retaliation. In reality, I'm not sure Pakistan has that many options. As I said before, uh, you know, Pakistan's uh, conventional military capabilities are much less strong than those of India. So if it were to say, you know, send a few airstrikes into India if it were to target some Indian military target somewhere across the border in India, whether in India-administered Kashmir or, or, or more broadly in India, that, that could risk a devastating Indian reprisal, even under the nuclear umbrella, uh, that simply may not be worth it for Pakistan. So I don't know. I, I think that for, for political reasons, it was important for the Pakistani leadership to come out and talk tough today, which it, which it did. Um, but in terms of actual moves, things it can do, it may be relatively constrained. I think it may have to limit itself to essentially doing what it's been doing the last few decades, and that's to uh, tighten its embrace of these militant groups like Jaishi Muhammad, essentially encourage them, perhaps more uh, aggressively, to stage attacks in, uh, in, in, in India. I think that may be its best um, tactic at this point. So... That you know, as as you just said, you know this this the the response by India to Pakistan was was entirely predictable. The political um, impact of this in Indian domestic politics to um, help shore up um, support for the BJP from Narendra Modi's party it all seemed just like so predictable. And I guess I'm just trying to wrap my head around like why um, why. Like, what advantage was gained by Pakistan or Jaish Mohammed by launching this attack? Like, how did they benefit? Well, I mean, it depends. If if if, if we assume that Pakistan actually had a role in it, mm. in a direct role, which I don't think is necessarily the case, then yeah, it it makes sense to ask that question because clearly, uh, you know, this was one of the deadliest attacks in Kashmir in many years. Uh, certainly one of the deadliest attacks on Indian security forces. Obviously, Pakistan would have had to know that India was not going to just sit quietly. But if this is, if you just think of this as an attack staged by Jaishi Muhammad without any necessary tactical or other uh, notable support or assistance from Pakistan, well, Jaishi Muhammad has his own reasons for wanting to carry out an attack like this. Um, you know, Kashmir, India administered Kashmir is an area that's come under the uh, the influence increasingly of larger terrorist groups. ISIS and Al Qaeda uh, have tried to develop a footprint there. They've you know they've they've claimed a few attacks there over the last few years. So I think Jaishi Muhammad may have had a, an incentive to try to you know. Uh, to, uh, for lack of a better phrase, reassert its, its jihadist street cred uh, in, in Kashmir by carrying out this attack and showing that it's still very potent, which, which it clearly is. Um, and at the end of the day, it's a terrorist organization. Um, it's, it's out there to, to cause fear and cause terror. Uh, but also, let's not forget that Jaishi Muhammad is not, it's not just there to kill people. It, it has a political objective of trying to undercut the the control of the Indian security forces in Kashmir uh, so that it would make it easier for Pakistan to try to wrest 
uh, India administered Kashmir from uh, India. So, you know, different. There's different factors involved. Depends on again who really was involved in this attack. If it was Jaishi Muhammad with assistance from Pakistan, or just Jaishi Muhammad. If it's just Jaishi Muhammad, I think you could identify clearly some compelling reasons why they decided to do this when they did. So I have to imagine, and, and just to wrap up, you know, experts like yourself have you know thought through and maybe like game theory to situations under which India and Pakistan may you know um, go nuclear with each other. Um, is this part of, is an attack like this and is a situation like this sort of part of the step and the logic that might lead to, you know, the worst outcome possible? Well, fortunately, not yet. I don't think we have to worry about nuclear fears just yet. Um, but the problem here, the reason why we always have to be concerned about the nuclear threat uh, in this dynamic is that Pakistan has never um, agreed to um, a no first use policy when it comes to nuclear weapons. So what I mean by that, Pakistan, basically, um, India uh, could stage any type of conventional military strike in Pakistan, even a very modest one. Uh, and no matter how modest or limited it may be, Pakistan could then retaliate with a nuclear response because it's never ruled out um, using nuclear weapons in that regard. So you really have to worry about that. I don't think at this point we have to worry about this escalating into a nuclear uh, threat. Uh, if Pakistan were to retaliate by launching military uh, force into India, and then India then retaliated from there, then you have to worry about getting to a point of, of a conflict, something approaching a hot conflict. It's at that point when you have to start worrying about nuclear exchanges. I, I do think, though, that it is very unlikely that we would have to worry about um, that type of thing. It, it would take it would take a whole lot. Uh, and I think at the end of the day, these are two bitter, bitter rivals, but neither of them wants an escalation. Neither of them wants a conflict, and certainly neither of them wants a nuclear conflict. Uh, well, Michael, thank you so much, and, and I, I hope and suspect that you're, you're correct. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Michael. That was a very helpful uh, explanation. And, uh, you know, as I said, my intention with episodes like this one, when there are, you know, in the midst of, a, of like a unfolding crisis is, you know, not so much to spend um, a lot of time talking about the um, tit for tat or the um, timeline of issues as they are unfolding in real time, but rather kind of give you the context you need to understand these events as they unfold. And I think uh, Michael did a really good job of that. So thank you. All right. We'll see you next time. And as always, please leave a review on iTunes. It helps for the reasons I explained at the outset of the show. Bye.